Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. This week, we are going to talk about an important topic that cuts to the essence of air combat, the kill chain. Combat aircraft don't fly sorties for the sake of getting time in the air. It's all about netting effects that empower the broader strategy. That might involve ensuring ammunition hits the right aim point, what we call a kinetic strike. Or it might be a non-kinetic operation where we use something like electronic attack to make something happen on the battlefield. Regardless of the means, achieving battle space effects with combat aircraft is a result of something we call the kill chain. The kill chain is made up of a series of steps. Find, fix, track, target, engage, and assess. Big picture, that means detecting and identifying what you want to strike, knowing where it is, and if it's moving, where it's going and then selecting the appropriate weapon and guiding it to impact. Finally, we need to evaluate what the outcome of the attack was to decide what the next move is. This kill chain process is enduring. And while the way in which we've closed kill chains has evolved over history, these macro steps, which Warfighters and Wonk acronym into F2T2EA, are generally the same. But these days, we are looking at some serious problems when it comes to prosecuting successful kill chains. Peer adversaries, especially China, are developing countermeasures to obstruct and even collapse the ability to implement our kill chain process. And this is a big deal because if you can't get a bomb on target, you can't win a war. So that's what we're here to explore today. All right, so I am really pleased to introduce Heather Lucky Penny of our Mitchell team to walk us through this challenge and then explore what solutions might look like uh, she's released a report on this topic, and we wanted to give you a peek at the big picture thoughts in place. So, Lucky, welcome back. It is always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's like it's great to be here. Thanks so much. All right. Now, I did try to explain what a kill chain was to our audience in the introduction, but you are the expert given the report you've just written. So please help people understand the baseline here for the concepts that are in play. <laughs> you did a great job. Find, fix, track, target, engage, assess. But if we just think about it, this is the whole ready, aim, fire program, right? Ready, fire, aim is the wrong process to do for a kill chain. So if you think about the find, fix, track, target, engage, assess as functions, things that we need to do, and we can also think of them as nodes because those are physical things, physical widgets, sensors, processors, weapons, aircraft that actually have to do that function. And then they have to share information as a process moves forward. So if I can find a target, but I don't move that information, that location information forward, then that doesn't progress the kill chain. So that's a basic concept is that these are the steps that need to be done in order to be able to go from detecting and finding a target to creating an effect against that target, whether or not that's kinetic, so a weapon that goes boom, or non-kinetic, like electronic warfare. So that's what's really important about the kill chain, is understanding that there's those steps. Each one of those steps is an actual physical thing that has to do something, 
and then they have to share that information. So if we think of those as the, the nodes and then the links, and sometimes in some cases they're actual data links, all of that has to happen in process and it cannot be broken because if it's broken, then you have to generally go back to an earlier step or maybe even step one. But regardless, if that kill chain is broken, you're not putting bombs on target on time. Yeah, it's a great point. I really have to ask like where we are today because thinking back and looking back, we we got really good at prosecuting dynamic targets over the course of really the last 30 years. And thinking about the early 2000s, we first began doing counterinsurgency operations and OIF and OEF. We thought compressing our kill chains to less than 10 minutes against a, a fleeting target was nearly impossible. But in the last decade, we could really complete the kill chain in far less time. And we came far, we got really good at it. So what's the problem that you're talking about now? Yeah, you're right. So like, I mean, we were really good at it. And we're really good at doing that in that scenario, right? So there's two main things. First is we have to consider what the battle space was like in Iraq and in Afghanistan. It's not very big. They're, they're fairly contained regions. It was really permissive. In general, no one was really shooting back at that. So we could loiter overhead. We could maintain persistent ISR. There was really no threat systems that we had to worry about. And again, like I said, it was small geography. When you take all of that together, we could have a few multifunction systems like JSTARS, for example, or even the MQ-9. And just we could use that that could then create multiple kill chains because they could see different movers and they could then queue a small number of fighters to go towards those movers. So we got really good at it because we went through that process of decomposing those steps in the kill chain and understanding who could who was good at doing what and how we could share that information. So we generated the technologies, the data links and the operational concepts to compress those kill chains. But that's a very different battle space than what we would face in a highly contested peer contest. And here's the other thing. China has developed a strategy specifically designed to attack our kill chains. Yeah, you really do bring up a great point. I think about, obviously, uh, the permissive environment and just being in the desert, right? It was kind of a, a really permissive battle space there. And we know that when we've talked about it before on the podcast, that the Pacific imposes this idea of the, the tyranny of distance. And I know the Air Force has worked and been working on long-range kill chains. And I no normally think of the meaning of that is needing a long-range aircraft and long-range weapons. Can you break down how the distance does affect the kill chains? Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought this up because we often talk about kill chains in the abstract, right? The find node, the fix node, we need to connect it through the links. But we have to remember that kill chains are ultimately real physical things that operate in the real physical world. And so that does mean actual aircraft, long-range aircraft, satellites that are able to really span the entire globe, sensors that can see the distance, that can see that far, that are that sensitive, data links that have the distance, that have that kind of range, and the weapons as well that can go the distance. So all that means is this, this translates into having to meet the physical realities and challenges of the battle space. And in the paper, we call this scope. And scope is really three things. Range, so literally that is, no kidding, just the nautical miles from where our assets are to the target area. So that's a square mileage. So that really is basically half of the, half the globe, that whole hemisphere. And duration, and that's time. Because as we know, range is time. So ultimately, all of our aircraft, our sensors, our data links, our weapons, 
And there's an important part too, the force size, our actual capacity, the quantity, the number of stuff that we have. We've got to have enough to be able to meet these challenges. That's the first part that you mentioned, the battle space. But you also mentioned that China has developed a warfighting strategy, essentially, that deliberately targets our kill chains. Can you break that down by what you mean and how is this different from traditional threats? Exactly. Yeah. If you think about the kind of fighting that we've been doing since post-Desert Storm, that's basically attrition-based warfare. You were over in the desert there with me, and, and we were hunting counterinsurgents and folks replacing IDs, and we joked that it was a little bit like whack-a-mole, right? It was attrition-based warfare. So we're primed to think of any threat as an attrition-type threat. But China actually watched how we conducted Operation Desert Storm, and they learned from our strategy. They learned from how we conducted operations, where we deliberately sought to target Iraqi command and control nodes, networks, and basically paralyze the Iraqi military. So China has emulated that approach, and they've been studying our way of war for the last 30 years. So they understand our capabilities, how we operate, how we share information, what our tactics, techniques, and procedures are. And importantly, they're modernizing their military to be able to paralyze our combat operations. The implications of this kind of strategy, coupled with their capability, and they are aggressively modernizing their military, is far more dire than what we've been thinking of what they're doing as anti-access and area denial. The PLA is going to try to disrupt, dismantle, and destroy our kill chains, and they'll do this in four ways. First, they're going to target our nodes. So remember how I said nodes are those functions within the kill chain, the find, fix, target, track, engage, assess? They will target our aircraft, our platforms, our sensors, our satellites. Next is they'll target our networks, how we share the information, so how we link the nodes and those functions together in the process. So they'll seek to jam our networks. They'll seek to kill our gateways and obstruct our communications. They'll also seek to disrupt our relationships. So they know the dependencies that we have on each other because we operate as a system, as combined arms, right? So by disrupting our relationships, and they can do this either by taking out certain high-value assets, like if you take an AWACS or a JSTARS away or an E7 away in the future, or you even blind take our satellites away, that really forces us to change how we operate together. And it can be very chaotic and, and disrupt our operations. So that's the third way that they'll seek to target us by disrupting our relationships. And finally, they'll seek to extend our operational tempos or defeat our operational tempos. And they can do this either passively, shoot and scoot, if you will, where they fire a weapon and then they move quickly before we can find them and then target them is one way they can defensively be inside of our tempo. Or they can also force us to extend our tempos. And they can do this either by exploiting our rules of engagement, using deception, or other techniques that force us to go back to an earlier step in the kill chain and so by that means, they can extend our kill chain artificially. So those are examples of how they would seek to disrupt and target our kill chains. It's funny that you mentioned all of this because it obviously makes sense. But I have to admit, we've been really focused on their industrial complex and, and what they're doing as far as modernizing their military capabilities. But I did not realize that how much forethought they're putting into, into this disruption as, as you're describing. Yes. And you know what? They've told us that this is what they're doing. So we need to believe them. Importantly, what we're proposing in this report is a slight shift in our approach, one that, that moves from thinking about capabilities in a related but stovepiped way 
to one that understands conflict as a kill chain competition. Military conflict is fundamentally that kind of competition because kill chains are how we impose effects against the adversary to achieve our campaign objectives. So we really need to evaluate our portfolio of capabilities as a whole, as a system, and from the perspective of, does this give us kill chain superiority? Yeah, it really harkens back to some of the discussions of John Boyd's OODA loop. And for the audience that are unfamiliar with this, just a personal recommendation to, to read Boyd, the fighter pilot that changed the art of warfare. Because out, out of the book, it really talks about how we decision make, especially from a warfighting perspective. And so when we talk about like this military kill chain competition, how do you define this? And, and what attributes are you looking for to achieve kill chain superiority? Totally on board with your recommendation for the for the OODA loop and with the with John Boyd's theory because it is related, but because it is related to the kill chain. But so when we're talking about kill chain superiority, we propose that there are four main principles that we need to optimize in order to be able to achieve and ensure kill chain superiority. So the first one is scale, right? We need to right size the scale of our kill chains for the target sets. So for example, when you and I were in the desert, we were schwacking maybe what, one, four, five targets a day. That's going to be, <laughs> yeah, like that's nothing compared to what we would see in a pure conflict, right? So we need to right size the scale of kill chains for the target sets. And that means we need to have the capacity to generate and close the necessary volume of simultaneous kill chains at any point in time. Because if we don't have the scale, that means that there's going to be targets that get away and the adversary can adapt and evade and change. The second is we need to right-size the scope of our kill chains for that theater. And we talked a little bit about this earlier, right, where the geography of Iraq and Afghanistan, yeah, it was seemed big, but it's nothing compared to what the Pacific will force us to do. And so scope is the physical ability of kill chain systems to span both space and time. So we've got to be able to go the distance. We have to be able to saturate the right area of volume. And we have to be able to persist across the battle space, right? So that's another piece of scope. We could persist in Iraq and Afghanistan. We had 64 orbits of RPAs. Are we going to be able to do that, something similar, in the Pacific. And I think that's one of the reasons why you're seeing that the Air Force focus so much on space right now. It doesn't mean that we have to need, we have to be everywhere all the time, but we need to be able to right size our position and we have to be able to get there in time. So third, we need to outpace our adversary's countermeasures. And so we talked a little bit about this, right? We want we need to have speed. Speed really refers to the time required to complete the kill chains. So we usually think about speed in terms of like hypersonics, but this is literally how fast can we go from detection to closure. And so we have to be able to outpace adversaries' efforts to deny, disrupt, or break our kill chains, or even just evade our kill chains, right? Getting back to that sort of shoot and scoot tactic. We have to be faster than the bad guy. And ultimately, we have to ensure that our kill chains are survivable. And when I talk about survivability, it's, it's not really just the survivability of the weapon system, the weapon, the sensor, or the data link, although those contribute to kill chain survivability. We need to ensure that the kill chains themselves are survivability. They need to be able to maintain their integrity and effectiveness, even under attack, and even withstand the adversary's efforts to disrupt or break it. And that means they have to be attrition tolerant. 
If we lose sensors, if we lose data links, we need to ensure that the kill chain is able to continue. Yeah, Heather, th this just brings me to, I, I'm going to ask you point blank, what does this mean for the United States Air Force? What is the kind of force that the service needs to pursue to field one that's capable of es establishing this kill chain superiority? Because it just seems like it's going to move so fast. It is absolutely going to move fast. And so the good news is that we're seeing Secretary Kendall and the Air Force make investments in the right direction. But here's my concern about that kind of force. And he's looking more towards that long-range force, more disaggregated force, one that has some of that persistence through space-based ground-moving target and air-moving target indicators. We're looking at some long-range weapons. We're looking at some hypersonics. We've got B-21 on the books. We're developing NGAD and collaborative combat aircraft to bring more numbers to the game. But we need, A, more capacity matters. And unfortunately, we've heard Secretary Kendall say that capacity just really isn't his major concern. We need capacity. We need numbers. And that's just the physical reality of the battle space. But here's my other concern. A lot of what the Air Force is doing isn't going to manifest for 15 to 20 years, 2035, 2040 timeframe. We need to ensure that we have the right force structure and force size in the meantime to be able to hedge our bets. We need to be able to mitigate that risk now. And that really comes down to fifth generation aircraft. I'm trying to visualize everything that over the, the proverbial battle space here. And, and one piece that I want to bring into is how does this fit into JADC2 or the Joint All Domain Command and Control for those that are unfamiliar with that, that acronym? You know, we have a vision there of how, how this is going to be employed, and you can't hear a defense leader talk for more than five minutes without hearing about JADC2. So how does that come into play? Yeah, so this is related to JADC2, right? Because JADC2 is an extension of multi-domain operations, which came out of a, as a consequence of analyzing the threat systems, not the strategy, but the threat systems that China had, and really realizing that we needed to be able to pass information and exploit that information and connectivity to maximize kill chains, even though we were significantly smaller than, than what we anticipate facing in that kind of pure conflict. And so multi-domain operations evolved into JADC2, recognizing that we needed to develop command and control structures, not only to manage the complexity of operating across different types of platforms in different domains and different services. And so we're still sort of working through a lot of the implications of JADC2 and what that joint warfighting concept is going to be. And so then you see the advanced battle management system as a subset of JADC2, which really is focused on how we're going to really literally manage the battle space and manage those kill chains. So that's how our sort of theory of victory regarding kill chain superiority is connected to JADC2. Um, and it ultimately comes down to how do we maximize the optionality of kill chains, so that gets towards scale, that gets towards survivability, and in many ways it also gets towards scope as well. And then if we can do that rapidly, which ABMS is trying to do, that can get us towards that speed. Everything does have a downside, right? Where could you see this JADC2 kill chain vision run into problems? If we put aside all the doctrinal and command and control pieces, because I think that's still going to be a little bit of a food fight, it really comes down to connectivity. So as we look at how we've got, if you've got a lot of different widgets out there in the battle space, whether or not they're sensors or weapons or, or aircraft or autonomous aircraft, and they're all connected together and they all depend upon each other, 
It's the connections that create the dependencies and the vulnerabilities. So we already know that China has said they will target our data links and communications. I remember we had Mike Dom on several times, and he said, look, there's a cottage industry in China regarding how to target and bring down Link 16, right? So we already know that that is something that they realize we depend upon. And so if they can break our data links and if they can keep us from communicating, then they can really collapse our operational systems and prevent us from being able to complete and close kill chains. So there comes a point where we really can't allow this to be the single zone of failure. And again, this, this is one of the reasons why I believe fifth generation not only is important today, but these fifth generation aircraft, F-22, F-35, and we need to bring B-21 on board as quickly as possible. As we get to that, they will be critical to ensuring the resiliency of, of kill chain closure in the future. And I, I want to poke at this because it seems a little bit like back to the future. We thought we had the the JAD C2 vision that was really going to disaggregate everything. So do you still see a role for manned air aircraft and even fifth gen? Absolutely. So I said fifth generation is here today. We've got F-35, we've got F-22. We know that they have some connectivity issues, but you have to remember they weren't designed to connect and share information with everybody. So when we think about China targeting our communications and our data links, guess what? The Soviet Union was going to as well which is why when we designed F-22 and when we designed F-35, um, they were designed to connect with their flight and soak up information, not just from their sensors and passive sensors, but from other data links as well. So that they were essentially what, what I will call a consolidated kill chain node. They could independently start or initiate a kill chain and take that kill chain to closure by themselves. And guess what? That's still going to be relevant long into the future because of China's strategy. And what's more important is we're finding that F-22 and F-35, as we begin to enhance their connectivity and offboard their data, not just suck their data in, that they'll be crucially important to localized kill chain execution. So I don't want folks to get confused with thinking that, that, that F-35 and F-22 are going to be advanced battle managers because we know that battle managers do a lot more than just the kill chain execution piece. But that's what the F-22 and F-35 and ultimately B-21 and ultimately NGAD will as well. They'll do that, that kill chain execution. And because they'll be forward in the battle space, they'll have line of sight connectivity. They'll have significantly more resilience than something that is widespread and beyond the horizon. I really get your big picture thesis of the paper, and it's really helpful because people often think about the various pieces, but you're bringing it all together. But I've got to ask, because I'm sure this wasn't an, an easy project to take on, what were some of your biggest surprises or revelations while you were working on it? It's interesting because I do think that we're right-minded in pursuing multi-domain operations in JADC2 and ABMS, but ultimately they're all speaking towards a concept or capabilities and we don't have a theory of victory in, in this competition against China, right? China has a theory of victory. Their theory of victory is that if they can target our operational systems and our kill chains, they can paralyze us and collapse our operations and win that way. So what I think is that if we look at this as a kill chain competition, that provides us a theory of victory that we can pursue. And it will help us understand and begin to evaluate and measure our systems as we begin to bring these operational concepts forward, as we develop the tactics, techniques, and procedures, um, and as we begin to learn how to operate as a system, that we'll be able to know, okay, are we really maximizing or optimizing scale, scope, 
speed and survivability. Ultimately, when we look at this as a kill chain competition, as a theory of victory, it gives us a way to measure we will win when. Yeah, Heather, I've got to ask you this because I know you as a fighter pilot are not walking away from this without a couple of lessons learned on your lineup card there. I'm going to put you on the spot here, so bear with me. But if you had a few minutes with a top military leader or a member of Congress, what would you tell them about your research findings and what would you suggest for the force that they're building today? What are your recommendations or or adjustments from what you're seeing playing out? My my key lesson learned is is that we need to maximize F-35 production rates today and we need to accelerate B-21 development and production. I would say in many ways, those could be some of the key elements of being able to set the foundation blocks for this future kill chain superiority. And that's one of the things that when you talk to a member of Congress, they're, they're only concerned about what happens within this NDAA and within this budget. They're not looking at that long-term vision that Secretary Kendall is looking at. And if you look at the Air Force budget, we have more invested in research and development than we do in procurement. And we're also looking at divesting a significant number of aircraft, over a thousand across the fight up, and and we're only buying roughly around 600. So there's a, a significant net loss of capacity. And when we decrease that capacity, we decrease scale, we decrease scope. We're certainly not winning on survivability, nor are we winning on speed. So we need to ensure what are the things that we can do today to be able to to maximize those attributes of our operational system and of our force design. And F-35, B-21 are going to be crucial to that. Uh, Furthermore, I would say munitions. Munitions are only recently getting visibility because of what's going on in Ukraine. But we have long traded off munitions, and those guys have been the bill payers, for far too long, where we have fifth-generation aircraft utilizing third-generation weapons. So we have to invest in the development and the high production quantity of advanced and survivable air-to-air and air-to-ground weapons. What a lot of people don't realize is a lot of our weapons today are not survivable in a highly contested environment. You You can fire the missile, you can drop the bomb, but that missile and that bomb are actually going to get schwacked or defeated. So we've got to really bring those advanced munitions to the field. And what's good news is that munitions, we can develop them, modernize them, and build them faster than we can aircraft. So it's a quick and easy way, relatively quick, in DOD land, quick and easy way to be able to get at that that scale, scope, speed, and survivability. And then finally, the other thing I would tell a member of Congress is we have got to get serious about connectivity. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on the weapons side of the house. So I appreciate the tagline that I love. And I've said it many, many times. I said it when I was in the Pentagon that we have fifth generation and about to be sixth generation aircraft with third generation weapons. And and that's something that's got to be fixed. It should be, and I love how, how you said in DOD land, that should be the easy button, right? To get this going. As we've been talking, I've been thinking about when we utilize certain kill chains. And of course, my paradigm is as, as a fighter pilot, but air to air, like it happens pretty quick. F2T2EA, right? We're in this flow and and in and, and the air to air situation, it's a pretty rapid loop. And then when we do close air support, we really want it to be super tight, right? We're doing this F2T2EA because... We want to make sure that we're definitely taking out the bad guys and we're definitely protecting the friendlies. And when I put my seed hat on you, it's a little bit more fluid in between. So it really gets me to think about this future fight. And what about airmen of the future to effectively operate in this new kill chain paradigm? What are your thoughts on that? 
I'm glad you brought up those specific examples, right? Because again, when we talk about the kill chain, it's so easy to get academic and abstract and agnostic. And again, forget that there's like actual people and actual rules of engagement and actual weapons and sensors and data links and aircraft and all of that. These are real things. So how does this, what does this mean for airmen of the future? Really, mission command is going to be crucially important because we cannot have that thousand mile screwdriver going all the way back to their operations center with a commander and a bunch of lawyers standing around him saying, hmm, wringing our hands about this. When we're having to prosecute thousands of kill chains simultaneously across the scope of the Pacific in a highly contested environment, we need to trust our airmen. And we need to put those airmen forward within the battle space so that they have not, that gives them speed. That gives them situational awareness. That gives them flexibility and resiliency that we're going to need. So we're going to need to train them to be able to execute mission command, uh, to be able to know that we trust them to do the right thing. Like back in our day when we were young lieutenants and we were training for basically the Cold War, right? Uh, we were still within that kind of paradigm. We expected our commanders to, to give us our mission give us rules of engagement, their special instructions, their commander's intent. They'd kiss us on the lips and send us off into bad guy land and expect that we would do our job in accordance with the intention. And that's what we need to be able to do for our young airmen today is ensure, in order to ensure that they've got kill chain superiority, they need to know that they have the initiative to be able to execute what they need to when they need to. Yeah, our airmen are so dedicated. They know their job, they're professionals, and they can run with, with their commander's intent. But I hate to break it to, to, to you that we're at the end of our time. But honestly, Lucky, I can't thank you enough for the work on this paper. This topic is so important. And to our audience, you'll be able to get a copy of it and look for the official rollout on mitchellairspacepower.org. So check that out. And Heather, again, thanks for being on the Aerospace Advantage. Awesome. Thanks, Luck. It's always great to be back with you. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.